Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Tara Moss is someone that I've admired for many years and was excited to jump into a recording studio with her. Tara wears many hats. She's an author of 11 best-selling books with two more in the pipeline, a documentary maker, a presenter, a journalist, a former model and an advocate for women and children's rights. What I took away from our conversation is that she lives it and breathes her philosophy to never live the same day twice. Curious at heart, Tara shares how she is always attracted to research and words, even from a young age where her fellow students at school made their way into her Stephen King-like stories. Tara is passionate about expression and her latest book, Speaking Out, is a call to action for all of us to share our stories. In fact, she says it's not just a nice thing to do, it's something that we all collectively need to hear. We also chatted about self-care and when Tara mentioned that the core of self-care is to just find something that makes you smile, it made me want to spend a year doing random fun things just to see what might make me smile the most. This is an incredible conversation and I invite you to dive into the stories shared by the beautiful Tara Moss. Tara, it's such a delight to have you in studio. Well, thank you, Ali. I love the podcast and what it stands for, so it's nice to be part of it. Thanks uh, for inviting me. It's, um, yeah, really powerful, I think, to have your voice and your message in part of these conversations. And there's a lot of who you are and what you've done. You're, a, um, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're an advocate, you're a mum, and you're a researcher. And yes. it's probably the last one that I want to dive into just to kickstart sure. our conversation. I get the sense that you do a great depth of research in all of the books that you've produced um, and certainly some of the crime novels that you've done. What are some of the lengths that you've gone to in <sighs> order to research your work? It's funny, Ali, because I think I'm a bit of a research-obsessed person. Like I think it might even verge on the unhealthy. <laughs> um, my publishers would probably even agree because it's a rabbit hole I can go down. Um, I've just delivered a book which is my first historical crime fiction which will come out in 2019 and like I'm sure I would have delivered that book much earlier if I just thought winging it and making it up is fine but no I had to completely to immerse sure. myself like <laughs> down to kind of the colour of the tiles and the shape of the tile work in the building wow, that this character is standing in you know um I can become very obsessed. So things I've done in the past for crime research include being choked unconscious, being set on fire, do not try this at home, <laughs> um, everyone listening, do not do did this. Did you plan to do those things? Were they part I of did. Your, yeah? um, they require a lot of planning and research actually to do uh, with a reasonable level of safety. So um, I research a lot and I've done a lot of unusual things, things that might be considered by some to be risky, but I always mitigate that risk by obsessive research and planning. Mm. <laughs> um, so I went to a stunt company in Los Angeles for the fire stunt. Having said that, I think in hindsight, it was still extraordinarily dangerous and I would never do it again, but I'm glad I did it and got that close to an understanding of the experience for my characters. Same with being choked unconscious. You know, I went to Big John McCarthy, who trains the um, LAPD in hand-to-hand combat. And, you know, the, there was a medic nearby. And, you know, uh, when they do ultimate wrestling, which he has a big career in, um, you know, there are chokeouts constantly. But uh, I'm sure looking at me now in studio, Ali, you'll realise I'm not a professional wrestler. <laughs> I do not have the physique or the neck of a professional wrestler. So, you know, I was glad that John didn't snap me like a twig. Um, we talked through it. I had the experience and I was able to put that into my Mac crime series from the perspective of the character being choked out. Was there any moment in there that you kind of went, no, 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 that's all I need, like I'm done? Or <laughs> <laughs> you committed to the whole experience? I committed to it. I mean, I flew overseas to do it with, like, I kind of found 
what I consider to be an expert in choking people out. Yeah. Um, and in fact, before um, before I had my experience of it, for my benefit, um, this amazing pint-sized wrestler, this woman, choked him out, and he's about six foot six. Okay. She just like climbed him like a python, got him, and he he fell like a stone oh. onto the mat. So I had a quite, uh, you know, front seat view of what it looked like, but also what, you know, how that might be used um, in their case as professional wrestlers. But in the case of my crime novels, of course, how um, what we might call a baddie or, you know, someone with villainous intent might use that kind of technique. Uh, And I often think that that gave me quite a bit of insight into uh, uh, fight or flight syndrome, the way our autonomic nervous system can kick in and create some of the incredible stories we'll hear about mothers like lifting cars off their children yeah. or like doing things Super later. The, you know, they won't even remember it afterwards and they'll think, I did that? How is that? Yeah. You know, it's not possible. Um, and it's fight or flight syndrome or, you know, this adrenaline kick that we get, um, which is completely our body's way of helping us survive. Like, you're in peril. I'm going to give you this shot of unbelievable strength and energy and focus right now to get out of that situation. So for me, that meant letting him continue to choke me out while every part of my being was was wanting to claw his eyes out or struggle away or do anything but. And I was like, no, just let it happen. Just you're here. You 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 signed up for this moss. You signed up for this don't There's tap a medic out. over there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was supposed to tap out if I wanted to stop in my hands because we got it on camera or on video. My hands were kind of doing this weird zombie thing I was unaware that I was doing where mm-hmm. I was sort of going to self-defense training, wanting to stop it, but also wanting to tap out, but also going, don't, don't, do that. Wow. That would be very rude if you clawed his eyes. Don't tap out. You know, you, you want to do this. So when you're um, you're in that kind of state, that semi-conscious state, you're going completely on instinct. And um, yeah, it was fascinating. I don't recommend many people do that, no. <laughs> but uh, it was fascinating. But I've also spent a lot of time in Supreme Courts, uh, lots of courtrooms, lots of, yes, crime scenes even, um, back in squad cars and morgues and seen autopsies and jumped out of planes and done all that stuff that my characters do. Do you, would you describe yourself as always having been quite a curious person, quite a curious child, even growing up? Absolutely. Um, I think if I'd gone straight for journalism only, and it's something I do, but it's not my main focus, I'd be pretty gonzo, you know, a bit Hunter S. Thompson in my, um, maybe with a little less of the psychedelics, Um, (laughs) but that desire to understand by putting yourself in someone else's shoes or an unusual experience to me is a real focus and a real drive. Um, And that drives my fiction and nonfiction, my documentary making. It's all about factual. Even when I'm writing fiction, I've got to have that factual in there as well. Where do you think that curiosity came from for you growing up? Because you grew up in Canada? <sighs> yes, Vancouver I grew up Island. in Victoria on Vancouver Island. Um, I don't honestly know. I've looked back and self-analysed many times, you know, why did I love Stephen King when I was 10 years old and would steal the books from the library to read them under the covers? You know, why did I want to be a writer um, from a young age when all the kids in my class wanted to be? princesses and ballerinas. I wanted to like literally be Stephen King or a vampire, one of the two. Um, Why, you know, and uh, I'm not sure, but I always had an interest in the things we weren't being told, the things that were taboo, um, the things I felt like we just had the very surface of. And that investigative nature is still very strong. What else is going on? Where, where else does that come from? <laughs> yeah, what's come the from real or? story here? Because, yeah. you know, so often we do get a very surface look at it. Um, and I've spoken a lot about uh, the digital age and social media and, and done a lot of projects with relation to that. And I think two things that's happened with the digital age is the very positive democ- uh, d- democratization of uh, of 
information and voices. Uh, we have a long way to go still in that respect, but that has been a real step forward. The negative perhaps is that we will accept more surface uh, uh, accounts of things like literally 140 characters or, you know, the news headline will be what is read and they won't actually, and someone might even comment on that. They'll have an opinion about that news article when they haven't read the news article, just the headline as it goes up their feed. So there are good and bad elements to that, but that need to get below the, you know, deep down, past the headline, past the the quotable blurb, um, you know, and really get to the story, I think is enormously important, perhaps a little overlooked these days. Um, and it's a really strong passion of mine to keep that, to keep that focus in the way I, you know, practice my life is to keep going. Now, I'm not going to just go on the headline. I really want to know what's going on here. And I think the onus is on all of us to actually ask that next question, to be curious. Okay, well, let's actually read it. I'm sitting here smiling. I used to live in Darwin for many years, and I'm sure you've heard of the um, headlines from the NT News. Yes. They're notorious for being yes. shocking and horrendous. And then you actually read the story on page 10. Um, I remember there was one article that, uh, you know, someone had stolen $20,000 from the... Um, and one of the banks in Alice Springs, that was the front page of yes. uh, the newspaper. You go to page 10 and read the rest of the article was um, that they were actually captured on the steps in the like in front of the bank. The police <laughs> were waiting for them. They didn't actually get away with any of it. <laughs> but it was sensationalised, like, oh, my goodness, how did this happen? But yes. it wasn't. So for me, in some ways, I kind of go, that was a really great ground yep. to go. You never, you always t- you can't you take it at face value. I you, always say that, I mean, we know statistically that a huge number of people just read the headlines or the first quarter of the article, so the first paragraph or two. I would say, like, at least get to, like, I want to know what's in the paragraph that's three quarters of the way through. That's, like, the least read. You know, I want to know what that says um, because you need to see the layers. That's reality. Things are not black and white. Things are not simple. Things can't be actually encapsulated into um, a headline or a 140-character tweet. It's not possible. Those can all be things that will point towards an article, a way of communicating that there's something here to look at. But if we're going to look at it, we really have to look at it, all of it, and really investigate it. And yeah, so it's a bit of a obsession of mine still, I have to say. I think it's an important one, especially yeah. if you're going to have an opinion on it, then you need to. Doubly so. If you're going to broadcast an opinion, absolutely. Uh, there's a section in my book, Speaking Out, which is on critical thinking. And I think it's important to just look at that. That If you're going to be speaking out, and I encourage people to do that, and particularly women and girls, because as we know, fewer than one out of every four people we hear from or about in the media is female today, fewer than one out of every four. So we actually statistically, literally need you. Like we need you. More women and girls, please speak out. Um, But if you're going to do that, I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready. So not only are you speaking out more effectively, not only are you doing more good, but you're prepared. If you've got criticism, you can go, no, no, I stand by this because, you know, here's the research I've done. Here's the, you know, the way I've analysed this issue. And you're much more solid on your feet. Is that part of what drives that research for yourself as well? Is it? Oh, absolutely. I've done that research. I know what I'm standing on. That's right. I know what I'm standing on. And of course, there are going to be differing opinions. And that's that's great if those opinions are also, you know, well-founded on, on real life, statistics, different ways of approaching the problem. Um, where we fall down is where we waste a lot of time in arguments that are just actually total fluff, like they're not based on anything at all. Um, and that can take up you know, it can take up a lot of radio waves and column inches, as we know. So where we have arguments and, and differing opinions, if those opinions are based in, in fact, based in the real world, we can really get somewhere. I really want to listen to those people uh, who disagree with me or agree or have a different approach. Um, that's how we solve some of the world's problems, you know, to listening to the possible solutions and nutting it out. And actually hearing what else they've and got to hearing. say if they've, if they've got something That's to right. stand on. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I think it's enormously important. So at the age of 10, wanting to be Stephen King. Yes. <laughs> yeah, literally, I wanted to be Stephen King. I was 
into um, his books of the time. It was the 80s. Um, and his bestsellers at the time like all seemed to begin with a C. It was Cujo and Carrie and, you know, I was really taken by these, but also probably part of the joy for me was the fact that it was a bit banned, like I wasn't supposed to be reading these books yet. And I was a precocious 10-year-old who was fascinated by this stuff. Uh, and I started writing Stephen King-style novelettes for my classmates at school, uh, Christine, another novel of his that begins with a C, was uh, the, um, I guess, the drive for my first short story, which, no, will never be published. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have it, though? I still have it. My dad found it in the attic. It's called Black and White Doom, and it's written on full scap paper and in a little binder, and it's got... Uh, horror doodles in the corners and I wrote that when I was 10 years old and it was an homage to Stephen King's Christine but starring my classmates at elementary school and instead of um, taking me off and giving me Prozac and a straitjacket for that um, I, I would have you know explained that no no I'm not wishing ill on my friends they're asking to be written in and I was writing a, a chapter a handwriting a chapter um, that would feature the grisly demise of my friends and giving it to them because they'd go, oh, I want to be in this too. Oh, no, no, and no. I would write, like, that's how okay. morbid 10-year-olds could be. Yeah. It seems really weird now. And as a parent, I would, like, sit down with my daughter and say, okay, what's going on here? But this was what was going on. I was writing a story. We were all excited about it. And they would ask to be written in. And to this day, I get asked by, you know, taxi drivers and... People I meet in the street and, and waiters, you know, oh, can you write me into one of your crime novels? You know, so it's, it's I it's guess, carried on it's something to, that's yeah. carried on, surprisingly enough. Um, but, yeah, that's Black did and White Did your parents Doom. find that at the time? They did. And how did they respond? They thankfully gave me the freedom to keep being me because they could see that I wasn't an antisocial child. I wasn't disturbed or unhappy. This was just a creative exploration of the taboo. And that's powerful, right? To and be that's able to see powerful. That as a parent. And as an adult now, particularly being active in child rights and human rights, I recognize there was something very specific going on there. I felt free to explore things that scared me because real life wasn't scary for me. You know, I felt safe. I had two loving parents and a home where I wasn't worried about, you know, whether we'd have food on the table. And I, I come from a lower middle class background. You know, we weren't by any means rich, but we were solid, you know, and that sense of safety my parents were able to give me allowed me as a kid to like explore things that scared me. And those things were fantastical and not real, like a car that's a demonic car, you know. Yeah. Those are the things that scared me because in real life, uh, I just didn't it was have. Safe and solid. Yeah, it was, real life was safe and solid. So, I was very privileged as a kid to have that freedom. And so whilst having this interest in, in writing and mm. obviously involving um, your classmates and... I know, which is crazy. Diving which is crazy. into all of that. And I can totally see that. <laughs> choose me, I'm more... In, um, yeah. It I was, it I'm, was I'm Choose your... your Own Adventure. Yes, like yes. it was, <laughs> I was writing Choose Your Own Adventure in pencil on full scap paper and handing it to the kids after school like yeah it's, it's almost like having a front row seat to like the jk rolling of the time to be able <laughs> to go right. i just uh, tomorrow i get the next book or the yeah, next episode literally it. yeah it was definitely not no but that moment of going yeah you don't have to wait another year for it to come out <laughs> um and then you went into the path of of modeling yes did that feel like that was a big divide in terms of where you were going to go or did that make sense? You know, it didn't feel like a divide. I was told later by pretty much everyone that it was a divide and the word freak was used a lot. Like, you're a freak because you can model and write. Like, there was a... You're not meant to do both? Supposedly a dichotomy that if you can stand and be photographed... You can't string words together. Somehow the flashbulb robs your brain of, of neural activity. I've never quite understood this. I think um, as a culture, we have always put down women. Women are the people we first think of when we think of models. Of course, there are also male models and child models, but mostly we think of women. And 
we think of women we find sexually attractive, you know, they're, they're hot or they're, you know, Victoria's Secret models or whatever. And I think as a culture, we still have a real problem with that. Like they're allowed to be pretty, but be smart. they are not allowed to talk. You know, we will not we will not give them the time of day or any respect. And I had no idea about any of that stuff. I just needed to pay my rent. And I was this lower middle class kid from an island in Canada, living in Europe, trying to make something of myself. And honestly, I never wrestled with the stereotype or ideas of like, you know, wait a second, I'm supposed to be a novelist. Why am I doing this? It's like, I actually, it actually gave me the opportunity to write because most writers have other jobs. And in Australia, we pretty much all have other jobs. It's not a a big money um, occupation. Like actors wait tables. Yes. (laughs) The other ones who are not (laughs) actors are probably writers. Um, But for me, I got to model, which is such a privilege because I could do less on the job time. Well, there were lots of castings, but less on the job time to pay the rent that week so that I could write. Um, it was only when I first published a novel, which was Fetish, back in 1999, that I was told by everyone that that made me freakish and this was weird and model-turned-author is just not a thing and I don't, you know, like, I'm from another planet or something. Um, and I was really perplexed by that and quite... I found it quite hard at the time, actually. And what was hard about it? Um, that I had always wanted to be an author from... You know, I think it was even before that age of 10, I'd always wanted to be a writer. And I'd finally done it. I'd finally written a book. Um, And lots of people do that. It's not an easy thing, but a lot of people managed to write a book. And I'd done it and everybody just thought, no, you didn't write it. Uh, and that, so it was being questioned. Yeah, it was It was like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? This has one of, been one of the hardest things I've ever done is completely, you know, being a writer naturally, it's not writing that's hard, but finishing a novel is actually quite a difficult task. I'm working on a PhD now as well. It's probably equal or, or next level. Uh, it's a long project. It takes a lot of time and dedication. And I, I was like, oh, I, but I did this thing and... You can hate it or love it, but don't say I didn't do it. Yeah. I found that really insulting. So it, so began a kind of strange period in, in my life that I think that the pinnacle of was perhaps when the Australian newspaper dared me to take a polygraph test to prove that I write my own books. <laughs> Front page of the Australian, the weekend Australian, you know, um, And that was before social media and before I had the microphone like I do today talking with you. People did not hear my voice. They saw my picture and then there was this book. And I didn't really have an opportunity to represent myself apart from, you know, within those pages. So when there were these sort of insulting things coming out, and some of them were in print, like it's not... Can't take that back. It's just not like weird things people would say in the street. Like some of it was like printed in newspapers and stuff. So I actually saw that as an opportunity. When I got dared to take a polygraph, I was like, I know about polygraphs. You know, I went to. uh, I've researched this. I've researched this. Like I've already researched this. I researched this in the US. And forensic psychophysiology is really fascinating, actually. So sure. I said, bring it on. Um, And became one of the first scientifically proven authors in the world. <laughs> super weird, super weird, author. dubious honor, that one. But, yeah. um, but you know, I did see it as an opportunity and the journalist who was involved with that was actually a feminist and someone who was really frustrated by the rumors that she was hearing. And she said, I've read the book and, like, there's no doubt that it's you writing it. Um, it's people who haven't read it and don't know you that find this difficult and it has to do with the way we box women into very narrow categories and have done so for a long, long time. And I guess it was a long time later, it was, oh gosh, uh, 15 years later nearly, when I put out The Fictional Woman, but that was, that memoir was was um, born in part from that experience early on. Fascinating, this compartmentalization, and the truth is, all of us can do it. Yes. It's not that it's just the judgmental few do. Yes. There are, and we can do it 
for the unknown. Yes. It's easier to compartmentalise. We all do it. I do it as well. And I think one of the most um, valuable things we can do in our lives, but also in our communities, is to keep challenging our own biases, you know, because it's not good for us either. We miss reality by relying on biases. We we just dismiss and wipe things that don't fit into those stereotypes. Because it's interesting, like, you know, even your, your mm. example is it was easier to say you're wrong than yes. for me to change my compartments. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to actually have yeah. a model author, I don't have a box for that. So yeah, I don't have a, Sorry, that doesn't exist because <clears throat> I don't have a stereotype that fits yeah. that. I've never seen a movie about a person like that or like seen a whatever a statue and all the other ways we fictionalize women. Like we don't have that fiction. Sorry, that archetype hasn't been invented yet. And which is just madness. It's yeah. total madness. Seriously, there are a lot of models out there, fashion models you'll see in a magazine who are paying their way through college right now. They are young women and men and people of different genders as well who are paying their way through, you know, for their future. A lot of them are going to be lawyers and whatever <laughs> professors they be, right? or whatever yeah. they're going to be yeah. or, you know, parents or full-time parents, whatever it is. But like imagining that you know something about a person from a photograph. It's very silly. It's one, yeah, one thing to have that experience, one thing to have, and a whole nother to have it splashed on the front page of a yeah, paper that's right. as well. It's hardly the worst stereotype <clears throat> in the world. Like yeah. if we look at fictions and stereotypes, it's not a dangerous one. You know, it doesn't make it so like it's unsafe for me to walk around. Like there are um, racial stereotypes that are really actively dangerous for people's physical safety. For me, it was just like, no, people just treated me like an idiot um, and were disrespectful and sometimes sexually creepy with me, you know, but I got through that. So I think when we look at stereotypes and fictions, there are a lot of different groups who are impacted by those and we should really question what we think we know, question those biases and make sure we don't perpetuate them. Before you had that experience, what was mm. the moment like when you actually had your words in print, your first novel. You've now had 11 best-selling novel, <laughs> novels and fictional and non-fictional books. Yes. But that very first one, to get that in your hands, can you remember what that Wonderful. was like? Um, I can. It's still exciting every time, actually, Ali. Like I'll get the – usually it'll arrive in the post and I'll open it up and go, oh, it's the first copy or it's the galleys or whatever, yeah. and then it's the first time you're seeing your words bound, that particular um, story – is solid. Um, I've always worked on a computer. For some people, they had the t typewritten pages. So there's an extra level of sort of an abstract quality to something that's like a file in your computer yeah, that you've worked on for years. Yeah. It, you know, with this latest book, for example, I spent two years like immersing myself in this world and, and no one reads any of it. Like I don't show anybody. So it it's almost like you could say, that book's a figment of your imagination, Tara. Like literally, <laughs> uh, when you first send it away to someone to read, it's a big moment. When yeah. you first get feedback, it's a big moment. When you first see, you know, the galleys or the drafts, it, it, it's in your proofreading, that's a big moment. And same with when you first see the finished bound product. So novels and other books are not just sort of you write it and then it's done. There are stages and each of those stages feel like kind of quite a big milestone actually because the project is such a big one. What's your creative process like and has it mm. changed over the years? What helps you to get creative? Yeah, I'm right now rediscovering some of my creativity in, in terms of freeing up the possibility of making things up because I've been immersed in a lot of academic study from my PhD and I've written The Fictional Woman and Speaking Out, which both have uh, many, many, many end notes and uh, references in them. Uh, and they are to an extent creative works, but they're mostly factual works with a lot of um, a huge amount of research and direct research. So it's not like I'm getting the feel for it. I'm you know, grabbing bits of that and, and discussing those things. I'm kind of ex enjoying returning to fiction because that's obviously what I've always been really passionate about. And uh, I have to sometimes 
take off the shackles and go, Tara, you can actually make some stuff up occasionally. It's okay to make things up. So that research obsession that I've always had is perhaps like been pushed to the next level uh, for me since I started writing nonfiction and um, working on my PhD. And I have to kind of like go like, oh, this is separate, Tara. You're actually allowed to make things up again. <laughs> no one's going to expect anything otherwise. And I still found myself just going crazy with the research because real life is so fascinating. Um, so how do I begin? Gosh, that's a that's a whole other podcast really yeah. trying to look at the craft of writing as a, as a process. But the one thing I'll say is that um, of all the writers I know, and I know many hundreds of them, and I've been doing this for 20 years, um, no one writes the same way. There is no right way to do it as long as you do it. Uh, every novel, every book has been different for me. The process has been different. And when I try to narrow myself down to a particular um, a particular plan and I go like, okay, I'm going to have the bulletin boards with the, with the notes on them and I'm going to go from, you know, A to B to C to D, you know, I'm going to follow this. I'm not that writer <laughs> and I should know that now. Uh, and I've over time realized that all these sort of tips and tricks that work for other people actually don't work for me. I've got my own way. And I think one of the great things we can do for ourselves as human beings is to look at different stuff, find out what works for people, and then realize we're going to have our own way. And that is going to be the most effective for us is to actually get those shackles off and go, Tara, you're you. This is how you work. Um, Accept that. Accept that there are going to be days that you're full of self-doubt or that blank screen stays blank. And there are going to be days where, oh my goodness, 5,000 words fly out and you're really on fire. That's okay. The fact that there are writers that have full outlines and write a set number of words per day and that works for them is great. You don't have to be that person. You can be whatever kind of writer or speaker or human being that you are. Permission and kindness. Permission. In, <laughs> yeah. In that moment Give yourself well. permission and yeah. permission to fail. Like sometimes you're just like, I really need to write this many words today. I really need to get this scene. And it's just not working. Sometimes things don't work. That's okay too. That's as critical. Yeah. I'm sure you've um, ridden that roller coaster emotional wave as yes. well of this is going to be amazing. To, yes. This is crap. Why would anyone ever? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Normally I know when I'm like close to delivering a book because I hate every word of it. And then on the next read after whatever two weeks has passed and I'm ready to look at it and I'll go, oh, I love this. Oh, that character's wonderful. Oh, that scene's so exciting. And I recapture some of my delight in the yeah. original writing. But, you know, once you've combed over it that much, you're like sick of looking at it. And then you can't really see the delight of the, you know, the reader with fresh eyes. So, yeah, you've got to accept there are going to be highs and lows and you're going to love, hate your work. <laughs> and that's fine that's too. Being that's being human. Totally human. <laughs> Throughout your career, and you started to describe it before, you've gone mm. from probably not having a platform and a voice yes. to having one in multiple spheres yeah. now. What has... Um, What's that progression been like and what have you enjoyed, I guess, from mm-hmm. being able to speak out? Um, also, I guess, probably feeling the pull of I have to speak out yes. um, and and navigating that for yourself. Uh, one of the big turning points for me, interestingly enough, was blogging. Um, blogging seems so old school now. It's, uh, you know... There's been it's been different in the 90s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's kind sort of, of the, you know, yeah, I remember this moment, um, it was maybe mid-2000, 2006, I'm probably getting the date wrong, but the ABC asked me to blog the Sydney Writers Festival for them and I'd never blogged anything and I thought, sure, I can do this and, like, it didn't pay because, of course, and I was like, yeah, this will be an interesting experience. I found out very quickly I can't write short form, like I can't, I can't, so I would blog about a particular panel session and it would become its own little novel, like everything, oh, I just can't, you know. There's a great art to being succinct and I am not that person, I am someone who likes to dig deep and keep going and look at things from different angles and it's, 
I've learned to accept that about myself. But blogging was a real eye-opener because I realized, you know, there are authors out there who will blog a paragraph each day and, like, people love it and it's great and it's communicating <laughs> something and it's working. And I'm like... Physically enabled. Like, I was like, I can't. I just, I tried and I couldn't. But what it did do is it made me realize that I could speak directly to people without being moderated by anyone else. So there were no third parties involved. And I started to really like that. And I got, um, you know, more uh, confident speaking directly uh, using Tara's voice rather than fictional characters in third person. And, um, yeah, blogging. I, I did a, a writing blog at one point called The Book Post, and then I started to do a more general blog, and that blog got more political, was more about human rights. And, you know, just being online, people could see my voice directly. I never used, I don't know, whatever companies and individuals that some people hire to do their social media for them. It's like always me. It's good or bad if I screw up or you like what I have to say, you at least know it's me saying it. And that authenticity is enormously important to me. So I started to really like being able to speak to people directly and and it not being, you know, arriving in the mail, like the, you know, the the reader mail. Instead, I could respond to them right away. Oh, thank you for that. You know, what did you like best about the book? And oh, yeah, you know, and what are you doing at the moment? Oh, you're writing a book. That's really exciting. I could speak directly with people. Um, and I started to really like that. And of course, there are positives and negatives to that as well. Which you've spoken up about. Which I've spoken up about, hence um, the documentary Cyberhate that I wrote, uh, co-wrote and co-produced and hosted uh, last year. Uh, looking at the negatives, but also trying very much to continue to focus on the positives, looking at the great opportunities that this uh, gives us, because I know what that's like. I know what it's like to not have a voice, but still have people know my name. And that's actually not a very comfortable thing. And now that people can hear me directly, they can love or hate me or have no real thought about me. But it's much easier for them to get a feeling for who I actually am. And that's made my life infinitely better. So speaking out, I think, is a it's a human right and it's an important one. Um, and, yeah, shining a light on people whose voices are not amplified is really important. It's something we can do now. Everyone who has a platform can do that. Um, and I, I guess I reached the point after 20 years of speaking um, literally on stages that I wanted to write down some of my experiences speaking out and how that's changed my life and and hence the book number 11. Oh gosh, was it 11? Oh, 11 <laughs> books. How does the time go by? Yeah, for me it's become, it's an important element of democracy and because I see statistically that real gap when it comes to women and girls, I focus specifically on that group. There are other groups who are not heard as well. But it's my, a really powerful um, book. I remember reading it when it first came out and um, I, I took so much out of it. And again, mm. a big part of it was that not only permission but a call to arms of yes. actually we need your voice, yes. right, wrong, indifferent. It needs to be part of the story. Yes. And um, it's because without it we're only hearing you know, a very small part of the story. I think one of the things that does hold people back, and I've certainly had this myself, is yes, I want to put that out there, but I am going to be open to critique, criticism, mm. um, trolls, bullying. And is it really worth it? Um, and even though, yes, it might hit someone that might want to hear it, what's, at what cost is that going to come? Do you think, A, is that held people back from speaking out mm. and what can we do despite, you know, that concern, that fear of critique, criticism? Ali, that's a really good point. Um, the Democracy doesn't work unless there's equality of voices, right? When people aren't represented, it's a, it's a travesty for the way we run government, the way people's lives are lived, their personal safety, their economic um, security. All of this is affected by whose voices are heard and who has the power. It is extraordinarily important that we even up those numbers. So when you say, you know, someone might want to hear that voice, I'm going to say they might need to. I'm going to use that word need here because 
we actually do need to even that up. And it can be an incredibly powerful thing. You're right that sometimes the price people pay is too high. And particularly that's going to be, you know, women of color, um, people who are trans, um, women in general are just proportionately represented when you look at things like death threats and rape threats and things like this. So this stuff can be quite serious at times, but the only way to change it is to keep evening up those numbers. So what we can do is reach out and support people who, you know, are speaking out and being brave and are, you know, doing important work. We can know that it's not easy for them and we can reach out and support them. Having said that, I also acknowledge that it's not possible for everyone to speak out. Some people are not in a position to be able to do so in terms of their personal safety and security right now. Maybe, though, they will in 10 years and maybe they're going to read speaking out or listen to your podcast or hear from someone else. It's going to make them think about what change can I make in the world? And they can move towards that. You know, that's going to be part of their journey, not right now, but in the future. And we literally need that. Like We literally need those people. Um, we can reach out and support. We can uh, report abuse. We can take seriously uh, reports of abuse, uh, especially when those um, abuses break laws or have to do with physical safety and threats. And that stuff is real. It happens all the time. It's happened to me, possibly you as well, possibly a lot of your listeners have experienced these things. And it's actually not okay to threaten someone with death or rape or encourage them to kill themselves. These things are not okay and they're not um, they're not legally supported. These things are things the police should have should be able to act on and sometimes do, but it's very hard to get that ball rolling, as we know. And all those who are speaking out about issues like cyber hate are speaking out for democracy. They're speaking out for those people who are experiencing it and are in the past were dismissed. Like, well, just shut off the internet, love. <laughs> you know, no. Don't read it. You know, <laughs> like it's, it, it's just like saying, well, why did you walk down the street? Didn't yes. you expect to be abused? No, you know, abuse is not okay. So, yeah, taking seriously um, people's experiences and insisting on a world that's more fair, more equitable, more safe, literally in 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 all in all respects is something we should all be demanding the status quo of the past is just not okay we can do better so that's something we can do if you see abuse literally report it if abuse happens to you i hope you're in a position to be able to also report it and i respect that some people aren't but we have to um, empower and enable people to be able to do that reporting more easily more effectively uh, because, hey, guess what? Death threats are not okay. They're not okay if they're in person and they're not okay if they're on the internet or in your inbox. And it's about... I yeah, see you shiver. I you know, just yeah, yeah. I just, I did, because it, it is a big conversation. It it's is. a big conversation and it's, um, I think it's that don't stop mm. what you're doing either. Mm. report it and it's a responsibility um, for all of us. Has there ever been a circumstance and, you know, writing and um, that expression of yourself and your story is a really important part for you, Mm. has there ever been a time where you felt that you haven't been able to express you or had a platform? Uh, My whole life until whatever, (laughs) the first blog, the first social media, you know, um, Yeah, I felt very much like I couldn't express myself and I also wasn't very good at it often when I tried. So I'm an introvert who puts on a good facade (laughs) or used to put on a facade. I'm not much more able to be vulnerable in public now, much more. But please don't judge the person (laughs) I was in the past for the facade because it was the only way I could survive and cope. And same goes for those people out there who are anxious or introverts who find it difficult. You know, I hope that I will look past my biases and not judge the fact that you are feeling, you know, whatever, you're showing impenetrable on the outside. Guess what? That's probably not real. It's probably someone who's anxious about, you know, being in public. 
So in the past, that's how I would cope. I would just smile and have this frozen smile and I would be terrified, you know. And now I'm not terrified anymore. In fact, there's very little that scares me, but I earned that over time. It What's helped you natural. to get there? What's... Going through lots of awful things and surviving it made me realise I'm a survivor and I'm actually quite tough. And I finally learned to respect myself for that and acknowledge that as a person, you know, sort of go, you know what? having a hard time but you've got through this before or you've got through things different things before and I'm going to back you you know Tara I'm going to back you um it doesn't necessarily come to all of us naturally but I've got to the stage now where I I will back myself um I still have up and downs but you know I I will back myself and yeah, in the past, it was it was difficult for me to speak out, but also the way people approached me did not make that a very easy or nice experience. I had a lot of experiences of sexual harassment and assault when I was a teenager and in my 20s, which I wrote about in, in uh, The Fictional Woman, uh, in part because I was in the modeling industry and in part because that's just an epidemic worldwide that is experienced disproportionately by women and girls particularly uh, when you're younger. Um, that did not make the world comfortable for me and it didn't open up like nice open conversations. That was like predatory and dangerous. And so I existed in the world within the context of survival. You got to be on high alert. I was on high alert, yeah. yeah. And the way a lot of people dealt with me was through stereotypes. So... I was either going to be like the perfect trophy uh, date for them or trophy wife or whatever they wanted, or I was a target, or I was just a, an idiot who wasn't to be listened to or conversed with. Those seem to be the main three, you know. Like, can we choose another one? Yeah, like, like do we have any other options here? <laughs> I got quite used to that, and um, I was lucky that I also had amazing, mostly women who supported me, like amazing people who really mentored me and, you know, those people who I still hold close. Um, did you reach out to them or did they sort of... They were always there for me out. and that's yeah. how I got through, I think. But when I described those sort of three scenarios, it was people who didn't know me. It was sort of what I walked into every day when I stepped out into the world. It was just like a constant... It's actually very... Um, it chips away at you. Because it was constantly like that. It was whether I was in a photo shoot or walking down the street being harassed by some guy. It was constant. The feedback was the same all the time. Um, except when I was around those people who knew me and loved me and thank goodness they were there, you know. Um, really excited that in three weeks' time I get to spend more time with uh, Linda Johnstone, who was my teacher in high school, who remains one of my closest friends. And she was you know, along with my mom, along with a few other people that are really dear to me. She was one of those mentors and women who dared to say to me, believe in yourself, you're worth more than this, you have value as a human being, not just, you know, as an object or a target. So I don't know how I would have got through without them. Having those people that back you before you're ready to back you. <laughs> yeah, before you're ready to back you and while yeah. you're kind of and I'm talking about, you know, I'm, I'm 44 now. This isn't my experience when I walk out the door now. Mm-hmm. Very grateful for that. But you may have listeners who are 16 or 26 or whatever their experience is. They might be walking out into that world where they are one of the, I think, uh, eight out of 10 women between the ages of, I want to say, 18 and 24, I think was the stat, in Australia have been harassed on the street in the last year. Eight out of 10, right? So they might be one of those eight out of 10, and they might get that every day, day in, day out. They might be working tables and having people pinching them still, following them out of work, all that sort of stuff. I relate. It will change. This too will pass. Back yourself. Find people who will support you and um, help you. I don't know, help you to stay safe inside, you know, because that's really valuable. Yeah, no, you But things can change. They've changed for me. My life is wonderful now, but it wasn't always that way. Yeah. Putting in the work, having the people around you is yeah. really key. A big part of what you do, not only your authoring, is also your speaking. Mm. 
And um, and I know a lot of your research goes into your your speaking as well and, and what you speak about on stage. Just before we jumped onto Mike, you said to me that um, you've had a what you described as a best worst yes. experience <laughs> when it comes to speaking. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I actually wrote about this in Speaking Out because I think it's such a great example of a experience of speaking out on a stage with a microphone that I would not have been able to cope with 20 years ago or probably even 10 years ago, but I was able to cope with recently. Um, So I've spoken literally hundreds and hundreds of universities and schools and at festivals and so on, and you never know what's going to happen before you step on the stage. I always have the same moment. I'm, I'm super prepared, but I'm like a little bit anxious Normally people can't see that, but it's there under the surface and I go in and I do my thing, but I don't actually know if someone's going to heckle me or walk out and I've had those experiences. This one was a classic where I was uh, given a particular brief to speak on women's rights and the need for gender equality. So definitely this is, you know, in my purview, this is a, a, a focus of mine. So I was very well prepared, had a great speech, which, by the way, I stand by every word. <laughs> and I got up on stage and there were balloons and there's this audience and all these people in black tie and they're all applauding. I just finished having a lovely time speaking with the people at my table. It was a very male, heavy audience, but mixed. I got up there and I started to give my speech and I could feel the room start to, to like shift and the, the balloons were sort of like, you know, at least... Um, <laughs> metaphorically slowly oozing to the ground, you know, the topiaries were kind of like melting, you know, there was this tension that started to grow. And I was, you know, I, I talked about um, feminism and abortion and women's representation. And I even quoted the then Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, um, his direct words, I didn't even specifically judge what I what he said, I didn't have any comment on what he said, I simply added it to the list of things that were pertinent to this conversation about how, you know, women will never have the what is it, psychological or the, the abilities to be equal because of physiological reasons. Um, <laughs> I could feel it like I've never felt in any other speech that there were all these arms were crossed, <laughs> all these guys were angry, and it was a very white, male-dominated audience of guys, and they were not happy. And the then prime minister had visited them like two weeks earlier. <laughs> and even my mentioning, just just saying, you know, some people have these sorts of views, and I quoted his directly. Um, and uh, by the time I walked off the stage, there was almost like no applause. And I walked down, and like I sat back at the table. No one looked at me. <laughs> It was the most oh. awkward thing and um, the most fascinating thing happened that, first of all, I was really proud of myself because I thought, okay, I can tell they're really challenged by this speech and all my little anxious parts of myself are going, maybe you could just cut it a bit short or just take that bit out. And I'm like, no, 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 you, these are words that need to be heard, perhaps even especially by this group. Did you have that debate on stage? In my own mind yeah. as I was doing the speech and I'm pretty pretty focused and professional now. So I was able to continue to do the speech, connecting with the audience who by that point were not liking what I had to say while I was, you know, had this other dialogue going on. Yeah. Oh, God, I don't like this. And I got down and nobody spoke to me for about an hour. And then all of literally the wives started coming up. They would come over to the table. There was like a band playing now, and they'd say, I'm so sorry. These bloody guys just don't get it. It's so important that you do the speech here in this place. And it was a very conservative area. You'd be surprised to hear. Very conservative and um, a conservative state, we'll say, in Australia as well. And the women were like, thank you, thank you, thank you for saying those words. It, it means so much to me. It means so much to my daughter who was standing at the back mm-hmm. listening and yet literally all the women in the room started coming over, started to have the kind of the the bravery to break away from what was at the time a, seemingly a divide between them and their husbands to come over and say thank you and to bring the books and ask for the signature. And that speech was no different than speeches I'd given in many other places, sometimes to standing ovations, right? I knew that it was a good speech. Yeah, it wasn't was good. the speech. It yeah. wasn't... 
everything in that was so solid and even. And I can say that I'm not being boastful. I'm saying like I, I'm a professional in that particular type of uh, conversation, communicating those things. Sometimes those are things, the most important things are things that not everyone wants to hear. And so if you have that experience of the balloon slowly sliding <laughs> to the ground, the topiaries kind of wilting and all the arms getting, getting crossed, rather than immediately questioning yourself or your material, think maybe I am talking about something that's challenging. Maybe that's actually a really good reason to keep talking and to, to do what is the brief. You know, the client gave me this brief, wanted me to do this. I'm doing my job and it's not a popularity contest. Anyone could get up there and be fluffy and say a couple funny things. But uh, if I want to make an impact, I sometimes have to challenge people. And um, I try to remember that as well when I'm challenged by a speaker to think, oh, I'm being challenged here. Oh, I feel a little uncomfortable. Let me just think about that for a moment. I'm not going to shut off. I'm going to think about why I'm challenged. And um, I try to put myself in yeah, the shoes of those guys <laughs> with their arms crossed. Yeah. Why? Why were they down. so challenged? And, um, and all the women who came up afterwards. And what, are what the, did uh, that feel like when they came to you? Oh, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. And it was fascinating also to see the dynamic there, like, the women in the room, they're the ones who'd organized that I would speak. That was their brief. That's what they really wanted. And they got what they wanted, but it was like it had caused this divide. And eventually after an hour, they decided they didn't care about the divide. They wanted to make clear that I, I'm standing by you, you know, like this is an important conversation. They actually wanted their husbands to hear for the sake of themselves and their daughters, yeah. you know, Um so, yeah, I, I like that story because it was like the best, worst speaking gig. Yeah. Yeah, it was so <laughs> bad. Like it was such a bad environment. And I thought, I couldn't have done this five years ago. I would have crumbled for sure. I would have gone off track. I would have like, ah, anyway, so what's over there? You know, I mean, I would have been so uncomfortable. But instead I was able to go, actually, this is really solid. Uh, you won't be doing favors for anyone if you skip past all of this stuff that needs yeah. to be said. This so, is my job to do this. This is my job. job. I've been be hired right. for this. This is the brief. So I'm going to do it and do it well and also recognise that, yeah, there's some rooms where you're going to be playing for the home team, right? Like, you know, you are the home yes, team. Yeah. And there's other times that you are um, saying, d giving the same performance and same, uh, communicating the same important stats and, and figures to a group for whom that is really challenging and they're actually the more important group to speak to. Yeah, that's, they're the messages yeah. that need to be heard. That's right. So you've got another couple of books. Yes. In the pipeline. I do. I'm returning to fiction for the first time since it would be Assassin and The Skeleton Key that came out in 2002. So by the time it will come out, it'll be like a set, my seven years of factual was the main focus with documentaries um, and nonfiction and academic work. And now, yeah, returning to fiction and trying to find a way to marry my love of research and my love of storytelling in the fictional sense into, I hope, what will be a new series. Right. I won't tell you much about it yet. But, Exciting. Um, Watch the space. I hope that readers will enjoy that. And I'm about to head off to, jet off to North America to launch eight of my books in person there, which, wow. Um, Why is the timing now right for that? Because I'm sure it's probably been yeah, in the radar. It's been on the radar. Um, so the entire Mac series, which is six books, will be launching there with me present. Um, and the two nonfiction books. And the reasons for that have to do with family. I mean, I'm really putting, um, you know, changing my life for a while so that I can spend more time with my dad and my stepmom and my sister. And, uh, you know, not all of them are able to travel these days. And it's really important to keep those connections and keep that, you know, keep family alive. So, my daughter is seven now and she wants to spend time with her grandparents too. So it's, this is the moment. It won't work in 10 years time. It's now. So I've decided to just shift my life and, and move over there for a spell. And then I'll be coming back to Australia and, and hitting stores with the new novels. So it's, 
I know what I'll do for the next 18 yes, months, yeah. almost every day, <laughs> which is kind of exciting. <clears throat> typing, signing. Yeah, typing, signing mm. and, yeah, having long walks on the beach with my dad, which is really exciting. What energises you? So when life's busy and there's yeah. plenty on the go and, and sometimes it can be all great stuff that you yes. want to be out achieving and doing, but um, it can also be draining. Yeah, self-care is really important and I know uh, I've spoken about that before. Self-care is just enormously important. There's a big section in speaking out on self-care for that reason, but I also know that personally as well as professionally. Things can be draining um, and for me, I'm still figuring out the things that keep my spark alive, but uh, real life is the inspiration uh, for me, so I have a motto that life is too short to live the same day twice. And I actually live by that. I don't do routines. I've given myself the permission to be me the way that I am. I'm very methodical about things, but I'm not routine oriented. And the idea of, I just said I knew what I was doing for the next 18 months, but I don't know how I'll do it. I don't know what, you know, that's mystery to me still, like how will it work? What will be involved? Who will I meet? What will I learn? I need to have those questions. I need to have that openness with the world. So every time I learn something new or come across a new topic or skill, I get really charged by that. Um, so I'm constantly putting myself in situations where I'm going to be out of my depth and have to learn and have to to kind of um, bone up on new skills and uh, be challenged. Uh, so, yeah, the, I guess the thing that gives me spark is being challenged, but I... I'm still figuring out exactly you know, all of the things that involves. How that'll work. Yeah. And what does do self-care that? look like for you? Self-care changes all the time and I think we need to remain flexible about what that is going to mean for us. At the moment it means no matter how busy I am, taking a walk for an hour each day. Um, so every day I listen to either podcasts or I listen to The Breeze or I'll listen to music or an audiobook but I will go on that walk by myself for an hour each day, and that's, at the moment, a really important practice for me. Um, learning to sew is part of my self-care, so I will, you know, sit down and mend or use my sewing machine, and that will, again, be a bit of me time, but also productive um, because it's more sustainable to mend what you have, and, you know, it's quite um, empowering, actually, to be able to have an impact on the things that you put against your body because I'm mostly interested in the dressmaking elements of that. Uh, so self-care shifts and changes for me all the time, but I think it's important to recognise what uh, what kind of turns you on as a person, like what makes me smile, what makes you smile, Ali, what makes whoever's listening right now, what makes you smile? If it works for you, don't judge it. That's my big message. It's a great example of a woman who... Uh, works at um, Rape and Domestic Violence Services who takes harrowing phone calls every day to support uh, survivors and victims. And she was finding that vicarious trauma was really impacting her life. And she'd tried a few of the more standard things like uh, yoga or certain walks with friends or different hobbies. And she just like couldn't quite get w the right combination because vicarious trauma kept creeping up on her. And you know, we nearly lost her from this really important work as a result. And she finally stumbled across the thing, the one thing that she she couldn't do without smiling. Doggy fashion shows. <laughs> Doggy fashion shows. And around her desk are all these amazing photos of these dogs with costumes on and, the, and jumping through hoops and doing all this kind of, you know, mad stuff. And for her, it was a one thing she could do that where she was really well and truly pulled out of her workspace, pulled away from all that trauma and all that um, darkness and weight. It was light and funny and it worked for her. So I always say to people, like, if that's one of our great warrior women for peace and for nonviolence, and it's funny to use the word warrior for yes. nonviolence, but I say, yes, <laughs> yes, there can be peace warriors. There can be people like her who are doing this incredible, largely unsung work. She can keep doing that because the doggy fashion shows, you know what, whatever it is that works for you, don't judge it. If it's not hurting anyone else and it gives you a charge and a smile, go for it. I love that. It just opens up possibilities, yes. doesn't it? it if it's the crazy mismatched socks you want to wear or if it's, you know, 
for me, sometimes like vintage caravans, you know, like restoring them and spending time with them and writing sometimes very dark or difficult stuff, but in a really kitsch, crazy, bright atmosphere. It's the thing that keeps me going, I'm not going to judge it. Yeah. You know, it really gives you the permission. So go and have a play. It's almost, yeah. um, there's a part of me going, right, for the next 12 months, let's just play with a few things yeah, and see what play. comes Yeah, I, I really, I really think so. Um, I'm also kind of known for my, not, not, interestingly, not wearing it today, but my red steel, my lipstick. I often mm. wear red lips. And I've sometimes been criticised for that as well, which is crazy because it's lipstick, folks. <laughs> and it's like the same as lip gloss, but has colour in it. Not a big deal, but um, for me, the red lips sometimes were like, it's just like that little thing that gave me a lift so it would allow me to do more, to be more effective because I'd take that 25 seconds in the morning to put colour on, to put brightness into my face, into my world. Um, so I say don't judge it, just do it if it works for you. And some of the most effective amazing people out there have tricks like that that work for them so be open to it and don't judge it the name of this podcast is called standout life when you hear that term what does that mean to you to live a standout life to live a standout life is to live a life of authenticity um and your i want to say your truth you know i want to be able to look back at my life and think I did okay. I got things wrong and I got things right, but I did things and I explored and I learned and I lived in every day. I lived every 24 hours in some way um, and hopefully reached other people as well. So that's, to me, stand out is just to be authentic and to be you, to be seen if possible, to be heard, Um, not to overtake others, but to seize that right we have as individuals, our human right to exist as ourselves under our own names and to to speak for ourselves. I mean, for that, that sounds like a good world. (laughs) All the best with North America. Thank you. Go and unleash over there. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. So, uh, yeah, if you happen to be listening to this podcast over in North America, look out, here I come. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Tara. Thanks, Ellie. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.